0: This is episode 18 of the Brick and Data podcast, a podcast dedicated to retail news, analytics, and tech. todd harris and in this episode we are going to hyper focus a bit on retail brands and we're going to do this with the help of dr william darienzo who's the founder and ceo of wda brand marketing this is a relevant topic for us because the success or failure of a retailer depends on how well they develop build and sustain a successful brand strategy So many times we've seen in the news, we hear of retailers struggling to either establish themselves in one channel or another, right? Whether it's online or whether it's in store or reestablish themselves as a brand for various reasons. So we've seen uh, retailers like Gap, for example, go through this recently. So as you will hear from Bill, regardless of the type of retailer, whether it's specialty, high fashion, hardline retailer or an off-price retailer, A successful brand strategy depends on several factors such as economic conditions, adaptability, um, and you know of course consumer preferences that that impacts brands too. So how fast can a brand adapt to changing consumer preferences, to changing economic conditions, and how well can they prepare for these things and execute on these things going forward. So to start from ground zero why don't we kick it off with Bill and his thoughts on some of the problems in retail today. Well,
1: let's uh, take the big picture uh, first. Um, there are too many stores with too many brands housing too many products. That is, if you look at the uh, problem from, let's say, just the relationship between square footage and uh, per capita consumers, the United States has many, many more Uh, in terms of square footage than any other country, uh, uh, certainly any uh, country that we do business with uh, in the world. So we're we're overstored and overbranded and and we are overproduct. If you go into uh, closets, there are certainly more jeans and shirts than we can ever wear. And uh, that is part of the problem because, in part, the economy has become driven by uh, continuous consumption. And continuous consumption is almost the, uh, uh, should almost replace conspicuous consumption, although that also goes on, but that's another conversation. We are in what I call continuous, a mode of continuous consumption in order to keep the engine of the economy going.
2: Sure, that makes complete sense. And just um, to to elaborate a little bit more on this, in your book, uh, you talk about um, archetypes and yes. how brands have archetypes, and that soul a soul, I guess, is another way to put it a brand uh-huh. soul. So with this in mind, do, do you think the technology uh, can be used to help a brand and/ or retailer create a better experience? Uh,
1: it can if it stays focused on the consumer. Uh, in terms of uh, solving and serving, not selling part of the problem that we're facing is that the uh, that the retailers Jose have become so transactional in order to make their numbers, and that simply could be departmental numbers or quarterly corporate numbers that uh, they tend to get into a selling mode, so they're pushing product and they're they're pushing conversions and um Technology ends up being used to generate traffic in order to do so. That ought not to be the objective of technology. It should be to do what's occurring and what's evolving in terms of the consumer mentality. Uh, one-to-one service, personalization. Uh, the, again, the, the solving of problems or serving, whether they be uh, experiential, whether they be aesthetic. People want to buy. I was reading some very interesting commentary, very anecdotal. One uh, millennial customer says, stores are annoying. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that one. That's great. Stores (laughs) are annoying. Uh, Aesthetically, a cacophony of clothing. Um, Here's another one I loved. I want to have fun, and I want to buy things at full price, but they won't let me. I thought that was terrific. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) So uh, how how do we you know <laughs> serve the customer? We serve them because they don't want to uh, feel cheapened uh, by you know the constant discounts and the coupons. And if you look at why TJ Maxx, for example, has been so successful, it's because the business model, uh, in part, uh, serves that end of making it fun, of creating the hunt, and serving the the archetype that is deeply within so many consumers the archetype of the hunter we want to go out and make the huge catch you know uh, bring the uh, mammoths back to the cave so to speak yes so everybody can cheer us as to how well we hunt (laughs) so uh, and they're not letting us do that they're just not letting us do that um so in in the light of this the the stores have to make a fundamental shift from being transactional to being relational. And what technology can do is confine the uh, particular uh, granularity of consumer cohorts. What's driving different cohorts? What emotional and psychological needs do they have? And how do we serve those needs? And in that sense, technology today is hugely important because it can move at warp speed. It can analyze huge amounts of data. It can find uh, correlations uh, between uh, patterns of purchasing and patterns of uh, expression as to need and then serve those. And until, until it does that, it's going to be under siege, the entire retail community.
2: Sure. No, no, that makes complete sense, Bill. So, so. Really, t- you see technology as a tool that is used within the overall experience, right? In yes. In order to create, yes. uh, What you call uh, an emotional bond um,
1: with a consumer
2: via brand or retailer.
1: Yes. Yes. That moves you. That gives you the opportunity to move from a transactional platform to a relational platform. And, and the relational has to be anchored in emotions, and that's where you get back to the archetype because the archetype, as you said, is really where the, the expression, the other expression is the soul. We have spirits, we have souls that need to be nourished, and we've kind of lost sight of that in a transactional culture where there is no relationship. It's next, you know, find the cash next. So sure. that's not the basis sure. for a relationship. Um this is also found in, in, in ways in which we use technology to measure which are mistaken. We, we look for satisfaction surveys, for example, and for uh, online surveys to measure satisfaction. Well, satisfaction isn't going to create a relationship because a transaction can make you satisfied, but it doesn't engage you on a long-term basis in a relationship with the retail brand. And that's, that's what has to happen.
2: Great. No, thank you, Bill. That, that that makes a lot of sense. And now, now changing gears a little bit. Um, in your book, you devote a few chapters to luxury brands. So he, here's a, a question uh, related to these chapters. Mm-hmm. How did luxury brands develop? And what do they represent in retail that makes them uniquely luxury?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, they begin, Jose... Uh, as a part of an artisan culture, of the idea of uh, creating uh, handmade, uh, the ex- inner, the outer creation of the inner, uh, or the outer expression of the inner soul of the artisan. So craftsmen were literally expressing something very deep within themselves, and that had a high degree of uh, authenticity, which translates into a high degree of quality. So again, and I'm going to tie this back to our, our conversation a few moments ago. Sure, sure. Uh, they, they weren't making product in order to create ongoing transactions. They were making products as an expression of something deeper, which fulfilled them and fulfilled the consumer when the consumer purchased uh, those products so you have craftsmen whether it's uh, if you take Louis Vuitton or May all those people begin by creating uh, unique products uh, obviously filling a space that isn't filled highly uh, uh, highly developed from an artistic and aesthetic point of view and that's the first thing that separates luxury from premium uh, fashion or mass brands all three categories uh, luxury is anchored in the craftsman's soul and the artisan's expression of that soul. And even when they become um, somewhat mass distributed, there's always uh, that uh, uh, that that sense that you go back to the craftsman's uh, uh, table and you see handmade sewing and handmade forming of leather and things. And that's... Uh, that's the expression of soulfulness really <clears throat> we want handmade we really do you know uh, it's interesting if you if you even look back uh, one of the things that believe it or not Karl Marx <clears throat> argued about is that the the worker no longer sees his or her product because the assembly line has taken away the sense of of the total creation of the product so the product is never the expression of anything unique it's homogenized Sure. And that, again, creates a problem, uh, and that differentiates, of course, luxury from other categories. The other thing is luxury works on desire. The other categories work on needs and wants. And needs and wants, uh, if you will, are less intense uh, than desire. There's the, the stimulation of desire. So, for example, the whole conversation of uh, see-now-buy-now, now, you know, purchasing off the runway, which right. would almost... You know, make the runway a floating retail platform, if you will, <laughs> if you think about it, right? Right, right exactly. Like a like a bunch of flotillas out there during market <laughs> weeks, you know. And, and what what was very interesting, both the Italian and the French uh, trade organizations, luxury trade organizations, argued vociferously and still do right now, that this will take away desire because you're getting immediate gratification, so it's it's almost as luxurious succumbing to the transactional mentality. Sure. And the minute it does that, it's going to tarnish its soul. It'll it's selling its soul to the devil of the cash register, and the immediate uh, satisfaction of the transaction.
2: Which makes complete sense because if, if you think about what you're saying, I mean, you said you start by saying that they're artisan-made uh, products, which means that. Once you get into this whole idea of scaling, that just means it's going more to the platform that you were discussing of, of ready to wear or just buy now, uh, look now. And that whole special component that you were talking about, that, that soul, is lost because it no yes. longer is, let's say, about that artisan human element that, that's endemic to, to the whole product, each individual product.
1: Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, we know, we know that only a small, a small part of the, of the uh, assortment uh, is made by hand or made by craftsmen. But the spirit of the craftsmanship is there. The soulfulness is there. The expression of uniqueness is there. That is, the, uh, the outcomes are still driven by the artists and craftsmen uh, mentality. And and if you if you realize that even though you have an extension of that there, there's a certain component that remains uh, off limits so to speak from mass production and mass distribution so if you if you begin to see now buy now you take desire off the table and you take the fullness of the uh, experience because the retail experience uh, away. Uh, because it, it, as you build up waiting for six months for the incredible looking products to be available, your desire peaks. And that desire drives the not only the outcome, but the fulfillment and the satisfaction. Sure, so sure. we're taking away some of the emotional experience. We're, we're missing again because we fall into a transactional mindset. And that's uh, that's a challenge.
2: Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And then and now then, tying, uh, together tying together some of the together. things that we've talked about so far, um, in, in your book you have a case study on Burberry.
1: Yes, yes.
2: Can you elaborate on what helped them uh, align the digital and the physical worlds?
1: Uh, sure. You know, what has to happen in, in these situations is that um, there has to be a, a alignment. Uh, of the internal culture and and the leadership uh, with uh, the current uh, patterns of technology and opportunity that those patterns uh, afford. What happened was an, an amazing uh, joining of Christopher Bailey and uh, uh, Angela Ahrens. Yeah, uh, she is CEO and he is <clears throat> creative director. And they had known each other, I think, from DKNY or Calvin Klein back here in the States. But what they both realized is that if Burberry uh, was going to uh, begin to grow as it must, because it was certainly just uh, thought of, uh, uh, beginning to be thought of as a a dowdy raincoat company. (laughs) Okay? Sure. And and the, the question is that was, is how do we take technology and integrate it with the Burberry soul, the Burberry uh, identity, the Burberry DNA. One of the things that uh, Angela's uh, predecessor, um, Rosemary Bravo from Sachs, you know, the former president of Sachs, who was CEO up until 205 or 207 for Burberry, she said is there's something very British about Burberry. Um, we don't know exactly what it is, but people in Spain and Tokyo and everywhere else seem to have this idea sure. about what it means to be British. <laughs> you know, so what our job is is to be as British as we possibly can because that's serving a deep need. Here, see, here's a perfect example, Jose, of where a company really looks at how the global consumer is perceiving the brand and its soul. Sure. And then creating strategies from that very, very solid emotional and psychological foundation. So they say. So Rosemary has a great quote. She says, uh, "We have to be. We have to first uh, understand what they see as being British, and then everything we do has to be informed by and imbued with Britishness." And then she adds, "Whatever that may be." (laughs) <laughs> no, really, now, you know, fast forward a few years, you have <clears throat> uh, Arendt and Bailey come in, and that's what they begin to think. What does it mean to be British? How does technology capture Britishness? So you go into the flagship store in London, and what do you see in these huge, incredible digital screens? All of the ads and all of uh, the images and <clears throat> and what have you, there's no sunshine. Okay? Right. That is, the the digital expression of the brand is the perception that the consumer has about London and, you know, and being British, you know, it's, over, it's sort of overcast, but they have a thick, you know, a, a kind of stiff upper lip and, you know, they have welly boots and they have umbrellas and they have Burberry raincoats and they go about their business without moaning and groaning. That's <laughs> <laughs> kind of what they, so there's one sort of definite, I, I'm making that up, but I'm not making it up because those specifics are thought to be. You know, the attributes and part of being British.
2: Exactly. Especially from an outside vantage point, right? When, yes, one, yes. One uses a lens. So it sounds like there was a lens on the outside that helped yes. them be more informed on the inside of what their particular consumer thought that they were, which then, when they tied that put together, were able to pretty much uh, figure out um, at, at the basic levels the needs and wants of that consumer.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So when you go into the, the flagship, I mean, it's, it's surrounded by technology. But when you see the character of the messaging, you clearly see the character of the brand. So there's where technology really meets uh, retail expression.
2: Sure. Yeah, because that London store specifically, there is a London location, the central one, which is the, the temple, if you will, of, of um, Burberry, where it relates to technology and where they actually test out a lot of their different technologies.
1: Yes, yes. And, you know, they have a whole series of other things, obviously online, you know, where they, where they speak for, uh, you know, the vignettes, uh, the ability of their consumers to describe their own vignettes and things of that nature in terms of Burberry uh, fashion. <clears throat> a lot of uh, relational, if you will, opportunities for customers to relate to the brand and to the company. And I want to show you how far they take this idea of identifying what it means to be Burberry and British. Uh, they've just built a factory outside of Leeds. Wow! Actually, in, in Leeds. Yeah, fifty million dollar factory. Guess what the primary product is that they're going to make. I'll take a I'll wild, go, wild guess. Go ahead, yes, go for yes. it. Go. Raincoats. Absolutely, give that man a silver dollar. <laughs> you hit it right on the nose. There. You see the consistency in this? It's amazing. Amazing. And now the authenticity, you know, country of origin authenticity is a whole section, uh, several sections in the book about country of origin authenticity and that retailers, you know, who who have brands need to think about that as well. So um, a perfect expression because now now they're not going to, you know, build a huge business of selling raincoats, but they have to dominate the category because the the consumer expects them to. Sure so. It circles back to what we've been saying, and um, when when Angela Ahrens came in, this is again one of the broad sweeping uh, expressions she had about the brand and how you signify the brand. She said, "We have to own the rain quote category. We must own it in every style, in every color, uh, in every you know, in every expression of fashion, because that's who we are." So it isn't so much a question of this as the major source of revenue. It's not going to be, and they don't expect it to be, and they don't want it to be. But it's the idea that's, that you're willing to spend $50 million to build a plant to create authenticity. And that authenticity will pay for itself, both in revenue but also in brand marketing.
2: Of course. It makes complete sense because it's like one of their core products It's within their yeah. brand DNA. It's the Britishness that's, that's, that you described.
1: Yes, it's the signature product which conveys Britishness.
2: Great, great. And then now to switch gears uh, yet again, um, going back to another concept that you cover in your book, um, you talk about the fallacy of a global consumer. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what this fallacy is uh, of the global consumer?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we, we had this uh, this vision in in you know in nineteen in the '60s and '70s and '80s when we were getting free trade agreements developing and economies beginning to flourish across the globe, that um, there was a universal uh, consumer, and uh, that would be the basis for brand strategies and product development. Well, neither of those came to bear fruit because um, culture trumps strategy all the time. Uh, Culture, the values, the unique ways in which people do things, um, it's always much, much stronger than the strategy which attempts to impose new business directions on people's tastes and and, uh, historical experience. So... Uh, You may, and and what companies uh, attempted to do was to really develop economies of scale. And unfortunately, uh, the consumer products goods companies began with this because they said, wow, if we could just have one shampoo type, right, for people in India and China and the U.S. and South Africa and everywhere else, think how much money we'll save and how much money we'll make. Sure. But what they discovered was that uh, there's universal needs But those universal needs are culturally affected, which means you've got to tweak your packaging. You may have to tweak your contents uh, to adjust it to eons, maybe even centuries of of habits of eating or habits of clothing or habits of interaction, which preceded the development of mass-produced products. So it's, it's one of the realities that... You still have to have somehow a global strategy and think globally, but you have to sell locally.
2: Understood. So that, 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 that uh, to, to play back to you, it sounds like there has to be a uniform platform uh, anywhere in the world um, yes. for a given brand. However, that platform uh, may need to be somewhat adjusted um, in order to fit the local needs, cultures, habits, um, expectations of a consumer in order for it to, to resonate with them. Um,
1: no, no, I, I absolutely. That's, that's absolutely the case. And, you know, you, you look at, uh, uh you look at China, for example, um, uh, McDonald's goes to China. <laughs> okay. Sure. And then, and then attempts to, uh, uh, do some brand marketing and talks about hamburgers. Well, there's no hamburgers in, in China. <laughs> but, so they ended up with an expression, a, a tagline expression in their advertising, which had to do with the hamburger bun. And then it, it further declined into an expression of the uh, the wheat or the corn that went into the bun. So you you, you get these adjustments. You can't just say, you know, we've sold 100 million hamburgers worldwide and we'd like you to buy some in China. It gets much more complicated than that. So you you need somehow to figure out how do I maintain the fact that I have an identity and the identity has to be maintained globally, yet somehow I have to market it uh, locally. That's the challenge. But... Uh, you figure out ways to do it in language and imagery. You go to colors. You go to uh, uh, telling stories, for example, uh, that are local in, and, and find some alignments with your own brand narrative. So this goes on quite a lot. And, and that uh, is the solution to the fact that there are global needs for companies, but local needs for consumers. Great.
2: That that I, I certainly understand that.
1: <laughs> yes. And, you know, I, I tell you, uh, the it's, it's amazing how the changes come about if you listen again to the customer. And it comes back to what we're saying about relational uh, ideas, about maintaining your DNA, but still looking at what the customers are telling you about how to express it. It comes back to the Burberry example, it comes back, back to how we started our conversation. Uh, everything we're talking about this morning is really all connected. Sure.
2: And so with that... Um, our audience uh, is comprised of many brands and retailers and a lot of executives um, that li- listen to our Brick and Data podcast. So mm-hmm. in your book, what are, what are some of the key insights that retailers could take from your book, uh, Brand Management Strategies? Maybe if you could talk about maybe two key insights that you'd like to share with them.
1: Well, um, I think the first insight that's really important is to ask the question, always ask the question, what business am I really in? And the book frames the case that, as you mentioned, Hosea, which there are probably uh, 20 or 25, both successes and failures, may I add, because we learn as much, perhaps more from the failures than we do from the successes. Absolutely. And um, the phrase, what business am I really in? is a kind of a way in which you alert yourself to avoid marketing myopia, believing that somehow your product precedes uh, the market. The market precedes the product. And if you attempt simply to push the product into the market, you're suffering from marketing myopia. You're not looking at the dynamics of change. You're not in a position to pivot when new, techno- <clears throat> excuse me, new technology comes. Uh, or new competitors come on the scene. So uh, you're not in the business of selling things. You're in the business of solving things. And the solutions you bring can be very practical ones, like, you know, you, you've got to have uh, shoes in New York because walking barefoot is uh, is kind of hazardous. <laughs> All right. Or, uh, you know, and therefore you might want to be in the footwear business, or you might want to be in the high-fashion footwear business, uh, because walking with glamorous shoes in New York is kind of fun and uh, attractive and uh, energizing. Uh, but you, you've got to solve the consumer's problems and meet the consumer's needs. So that, that's the first takeaway. And anytime you begin to look inward, you, you become myopic. You, you fail to see the opportunities. There's a great uh, little story about um, the railroads in, in the United States. You know, they thought they were in the railroad business, but they really weren't. They were in the logistics business and they got outflanked uh, by uh, truckers and uh, by uh, cargo planes and by cargo ships when these uh, uh, other delivery systems became bigger and more sophisticated. But they knew how to move things from point A to point B uh, faster and uh, And efficiently. But they saw saw themselves in the railroad business. They literally and figuratively couldn't get off the tracks. (laughs) And they almost went out of business. All right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is not to look for this kind of analytic approach to having a vision within your own industry. Because then you become me too. That is, take a look at the railroad example because it takes you out of your comfort zone out of your usual frames of reference from which you can't see anything new. But when you see it in another space in another competitive space, you suddenly get insights, which you can then migrate back into your own space uh, to keep you uh, in balance and uh, keep you moving in a fresh direction. So um, the first thing is ask what business am I really in? And again, you're not in the business of the product or the service you're in the business of the solution. And the, third, the second thing is don't find those uh, insights and solutions always within your own competitive space or else you begin simply to have a conversation with yourself.
2: Like what you heard from Bill? You can find more in his latest book entitled Brand Management Strategies, Luxury and Mass Markets. The book explains how a brand can successfully drive global business development using both a rigorous and applied approach.